Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, uh, real big news. So this week is the week we are starting the Critical Conversations call-in show. This will be happening this coming up Wednesday. It'll be at um, 7 p.m. Denver time. I will be getting announcements out about this in other places, but this is uh, where it's happening in three days, I suppose, from uh, when this is airing. And I am pretty pumped. I've I've had to put some money into this, uh, which I really didn't <laughs> afford to spend, but I did because I want to do this. And I want to have fun doing it, and I want to really, really interact with you guys. Um, you know, good, bad, or sideways, let's have conversations. Let's see where they go. Um, I'm interested in having my mind changed or at least being challenged on things. doesn't have to be religious in nature. I'm also interested in answering questions, but not necessarily just making the show into another version of a Q&A show. I really do want to interact and, and converse. I have had a, um, <clears throat> just a, re it's been so exciting thinking about doing this. And the reason that I, that I'm actually really pumped about it is because there's, there's kind of, I was talking to Melissa, my wife about this the other day, and there's really been a kind of shift for me in this whole recovery process of, of recovering from Scientology and, and being involved in a destructive cult for most of my life, where a lot of this channel was directed toward my own recovery and bringing you guys along for the ride and talking about things I learn as I go and not trying to, you know, stump around to some big, huge authority figure and tell you what to think about everything, but just kind of sharing my notes and observations and ideas along the ride as I go through this acclimation journey and all that. Well, after all enough years of this, you know, you start feeling like, Okay, I'm thinking I'm I'm pretty acclimated now, you know, and I started realizing that a oh, big part of what's driving me now is to interact with you guys and to have this kind of little community we've got with some of you uh, certainly have been with me from the beginning, others who have just come on more recently. Uh, certainly my Patreon supporters who I just cherish and, and love to death. And um, but really all of you, I want to I want to have opportunities to interact and to have teaching moments that go both ways, you know, and I think that's what really what what critical thinking is about is being able to to think uh, well critically, of course. But, um, but you know, again, experience it from both ways, not just find final answers and that's it and there are no, there is nothing else to learn about this. So anyway, that's kind of the theme or idea of the show of Critical Conversations and, and what I want to do with it. We're going to have to see how it develops. You know, usually how things start is not how they end up going along the way, but we'll see how this lays, how this rolls out. All right. And uh, with that has come a little bit of a change in how I'm set up here in my studio and um, some of the little toys I've got to play with and stuff, which I'll play with a little bit more when we do the actual call-in show. But, um, you know, now I've got uh, things I can do. Anyway, more you, you'll see as this stuff rolls out and as I get more comfortable with it, too. I don't want to just, you know, start throwing things out and just be silly about it. So... <laughs> and at least not any more silly than I usually am. Um, all right. So that all being said, I hope you guys will also check out the podcast I posted this week um, with Mark Bunker, the most recent uh, arrival to Clearwater City Council. I got him back on the Sensibly Speaking podcast. We had a great talk about how things are going, his planning, or at least as much of his planning as he was willing to talk about. And I thought we had a pretty good episode. So I think you guys might want to check that out. I will say I wish the um, sound quality on that had been a little better. I am. It was literally a learning process as I'm going through learning how I've, how I've reset things here in my studio. And I think today's show will be reflective of a higher quality of sound and, and video uh, output here. So, because I'm really sort of changed, you know, you guys aren't necessarily seeing it, but everything behind the scenes has changed <laughs> as far as how I'm producing my content almost everything has so it's I'm using different editing software I'm I'm my camera's in a different place I'm using different microphones so I mean everything behind the scenes is quite different but um but I'm not trying to uh um let you see all that <laughs> okay so anyway um let's go ahead now and get on with your questions because you've got some pretty interesting ones this week 
Stephen Faring, in your last Q&A show, you mentioned faith as the main ingredient to religions. That makes me wonder, could faith be a misunderstood ingredient in critical thinking? Because there are many things which, like souls or spirits, we cannot see, smell, hear, taste, etc., but which we absolutely count on and have faith in, such as magnetic lines of flux, such as gravity, such as love. You could name many things you can't touch which influence our lives, and I think faith is just one of many. What say you? Thanks for the question, Steve. Um, and you're bringing up faith. So let's first take a look at what faith is, because you're comparing it to immaterial things like souls or spirits, but you're also comparing it to other things which you can't see, smell, or taste, and yet which you do experience, such as gravity or love. So are these all in the same bin? And no, they're not. And let me let me clarify. So, um, faith is a is a primary component. It's not the only component, but it is a primary component of religion because um, faith and religion, by definition, deal with supernatural forces or entities or experiences, supernatural, above and beyond the natural, what we see, hear, sense, and experience. So by its very definition, it's moving into or going into realms of experience or understanding that are beyond our senses. This is kind of a really important concept because gravity and love are not beyond our experience or our senses. The um, artifacts of faith or religion, the ideas of them are things that we experience, but faith itself is, is really sort of a semi-emotion, semi-intellectual sort of uh, process um, it has been variously called different things. I'm going to go over a couple ideas on faith. Um, I, to answer your question, though, of course, can faith be misunderstood in critical thinking? Absolutely, of course it can, and often is. I perceive this right now as best I can with, um, in terms of how it's misunderstood. When I see atheists or agnostics or non-believers um, argue with theists as though the theists have no reason at all to believe what they believe. In fact, um, that's just not true at all. Um, but this is also open to straw manning and bad arguments, I, I, probably on both sides, but let me give you an example. One definition of faith that's been forwarded by and used often in the atheist community, and I don't know where it came from exactly. I've only known um, R. and Ra's when I've heard propagate it more than anybody else, is the idea that faith is belief without evidence. Um, now, this has been strawmanned when it's been replied to by theists. For example, I looked up a video on this today where a guy made a whole hour-long video about how faith is not belief without evidence because... This, what he said, is that this means that there is no reason for believers to believe in Christ. And that's not what faith is belief without evidence. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean that there is no reason. It means there's no evidentiary reason. And this is a big deal because this is where the critical thinking enters in. There can be lots of reasons to believe in something without having any evidence for it, and yet you still have reasons. Are those reasons legit? Depends on your standard of belief, evidence, and ideas. Um, and that's where the arguments start coming into play. I've sort of put together this idea that faith is uh, those ideas which you don't have to think about anymore. Now, that's not a religious definition. You can have faith in all kinds of things, and many people do. We have faith in science in many, 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 many ways. We don't necessarily understand the science. We just understand that it works. And we believe that it works, and, you know, for whatever reasons. And, um, but we know, and this is, where, this is where this analogy breaks down very, very quickly. So don't, you know, don't let me, don't, don't think that this is an absolute black and white, totally solid analogy I'm making here because, you know, the, the faith that we have in our cell phone is a little bit different than the faith we have in God, right? But the idea that you don't have to think anymore about that means that you accept this thing as true. This, is, this works, right? I believe this works because science says it works. Do I know the science of telecommunications 
and you know infrared or whatever waves these things go on 5g we'll get into that later um you know no i don't i don't know anything about it at all so when you tell me that this works because of satellites okay I mean, I can understand the explanation for it, but I'm pretty much taking it on faith that you know what you're talking about. And I don't think about it too much anymore. I just know it works. Um, so in a way, you could say I have faith in a phone or in, in your explanation of how a phone works, the scientific explanation for it, I guess you could say, right? Um, when, it, when it comes to religion, of course, and we get to get back to this thing with evidence, um, belief doesn't have to be based on anything other than a feeling makes you feel good makes me happy you know or makes me sad or whatever i mean whatever emotion your you know your faith or belief is based on it that could be the sum total of the reason why you believe a thing you know um and that's okay but when you're challenged on it confess that that's the reason <laughs> Instead of trying to go into these long-winded explanations of intelligent design and let's bring science into it. This was, this was one of the biggest mistakes, I think, was made between, in this big, huge argument between faith and science that I guess started in the, in the Enlightenment. Faith doesn't, doesn't uh, surrender itself to science or to evidence because it's not based on science or evidence. Um, it's based on what makes people feel good or feel right, quote-unquote, what they feel is correct. But you can't point to a feeling in, you know, with somebody else and say, see, there it is. There's the feeling, right? And this is where we get the differences. Let me come back around now to this thing like with gravity. No matter how many hours I sit here, this is going to keep doing this. It's, it's a predictable experiential phenomenon. It's, there's, there's, an, there's a piece of evidence here. I let this go. It drops at the same rate of fall, at least it's according to my naked eye, every single time. And we do it enough times and enough people do it enough times. Not just me. I watch other people do it. Other people report that they did it, right? Get the same results. Okay. Now we've got a reflection of what we understand to be reality in the physical world, which we can repeat, which we can understand as repeatable. Even if we don't know what's causing this pin to fall, we're going to assign a label to it. We're going to call it gravity. We don't know what it is, but we can observe that it happens over and over and over and over so many times, in fact, that there haven't been any exceptions we can find. Under these circumstances, this behavior repeats 100% of the time that we try it. That's evidence-based thinking for, the, for a, a knowledge of a thing that exists called gravity. What that is how it works when it what are the exceptions to it how strong is it what causes it all those questions are then developed using more and more and more experimentation and peer review people have to not just uh, carry out experiments but other people have to carry out those same experiments and get the same results before we validate that this is a true claim that we grant it the the label now of truth, of scientific truth. I'm way simplifying, but I'm just trying to get to a point here, which is that it's repeatable, it's, it, it's observable in some fashion, and so therefore um, we agree that it exists and it has reality as we understand it. A feeling, a belief, an idea you have isn't repeatable in anybody else's head. Not to 100% certainty, we can't know. I can't know what you know or what you believe or what you think about a thing. That's very, very, very personal to you. So that's where belief comes in. That's where faith comes in. And that's why it's not repeatable. What's repeatable are the words. You can say the Lord's Prayer. I can say the Lord's Prayer. Well, now we've both said the Lord's Prayer. But did both of us have, does that mean we both have faith? 
Not at all. You know, and I both know that I could be lying. I could be dis- I could be um, ignorant of the words I'm saying. I could even speak a different language, and I'm just mouthing words. There's no faith necessarily involved in that picture. It doesn't have to be a component of that. I don't get to say that with the pen dropping. It drops every single time. It's a it's an observable thing. It's always that way, and the pen's not making any decisions about it one way or the other. So I don't have to consult the pen's understanding of gravity to know that gravity is a thing. I do have to consult you and your understanding in order to get what your faith is. So it's just something that exists in your head. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Not in the observable, testable, evidence-based world. Okay, lots more that could be said about this and has been said by many, many smarter people than me. But that is a response to your question, which I hope will provoke a little bit of thought and I think, um, I think answers your question. Matt Kordelsky, I have several questions about the infamous hole. Most of the major documentaries tell us the story of how David Miscavige ordered all of his rivals to power into a makeshift prison in two double-wide trailers inside the no-longer-secret gold base. On YouTube, we can see a drone video showing us the empty space where the double-wides used to be. Can we assume Miscavige got rid of those trailers so in case the base got raided, he can say, see, there is no hole. Do we know if the prisoners in the hole are freed or are kept somewhere else? And have I got the names right? Heber Gench, who used to be the nominal president of the Church of Scientology, was kept in the hole? If so... How could a then young, inexperienced David Miscavige convince the president of the church to be his prisoner? Sure, I understand how the leaders of Scientology can manipulate members into harsh conditions, but how could some kid boss around the president of the group? If someone walked into Barack Obama's office, back when he was president, and announced, I used to work for W, so I am declaring that I'm now running this show and I'm ordering you into a makeshift prison until I feel like ever letting you out. Would Obama follow these orders, or would he have his Secret Service agents drag the kook away? What power, emotional, psychological, or physical, could Miscavige have over the bosses of Scientology at the beginning? I watched your interview with Jesse Prince, where he said that Miscavige threatened him, Prince, with his, Miscavige's, knowledge of some of the allegedly shady things Hubbard made him do over the years. So Miscavige used that to make Prince go away, But what could Miscavige have to convince his former bosses they should go into a freezing trailer for decades? Okay, Matt, a few misunderstandings along the way here have led to these questions, so let me go ahead and clear them up for you. Um, First off, you ask whether um, this is something we can assume that Miscavige got away with, uh, did away with, rather. The trailers are no longer there on the gold base, and was that because there could be a raid? Yes, absolutely. Of course, that's why he did. I mean, it's the most sensible reason as to why he did. Do I know David Miscavige's actual reasons? Not if they're kind of whatever, but, you know, that would be the logical reason for getting rid of those. Do we know if the prisoners in the hole are freed or kept elsewhere? As far as we know from reports, last reports that we had from people who had escaped years ago, they were still being kept in a sort of confinement. They were still being made to do ethics work, trotted out to do various projects or work or amends projects or something like that, depending on the person. And, you know, I know some of them have probably left the Sea Org by now. Um They get, um, as I understand it now, they sort of get put on installment plans so they keep their mouths shut to keep getting their money instead of getting one lump sum. Um, That's conjecture, but I think it's it's true. I've heard uh, something about that. And, um, okay, and then you ask about the names. Yes, Heber Gentsch. Okay, so now we start getting to the points where things get a little bit interesting. And I think that you have the idea from what you wrote here that David Miscavige implemented the whole back in the 80s or something, or that he's only now recently in the 2000s become in charge. Like somehow you had the idea that David Miscavige was ordering a bunch of people around who wouldn't normally have been listening to him because he wasn't the leader or something. You mentioned how um, he could make his former bosses 
Okay, so let's be let's be super, super clear about a few things. David Miscavige joined the Sea Organ very quickly in the 1970s as a young man, rose to the rank of Commodore's messenger, and worked directly under L. Ron Hubbard while still a teenager, holding watches, not very many of them, but he did do some Commodore's messenger watches, which means he stood around for like 8 to 12 hours at a shot um, doing Hubbard's bidding. There were usually one or two messengers at any one time, um, if not more, but always at least one or two around for Hubbard to, you know, make requests, give orders, uh, run errands, deliver messages, etc. And Miscavige was one of those people. So you can imagine that in the 1970s, working directly under L. Ron Hubbard as one of those messengers was quite a heady experience, gives you a lot of power real fast. Because you're the person who, when you deliver a message for L. Ron Hubbard, you are speaking as though you are L. Ron Hubbard. That's how those messengers were treated. And they were given very special indoctrination and instruction on how to act and how to be representatives for Hubbard. So that's how they were treated within the world of Scientology and especially at the upper levels of the Sea Org. Then... Miscavige is one of the young Turks who sort of uh, runs riot over the mission holders. And this is in the early 1980s, 80, 81, 82 time period when the whole mission network was uh, taken over by the Sea Org. Uh, This is when the Guardian's office collapsed. David Miscavige personally, I think it was in 83 or 84, um, kicked Mary Sue Hubbard, the wife of L. Ron Hubbard, out Got her out, got her off the lines, got her um, no longer an influential person. And the Church of Scientology was basically something she and L. Ron Hubbard had started themselves back in 1950, late 1953 and early 54. So as early as the 1980s, David Miscavige was at the top and getting rid of L. Ron Hubbard's wife. So after something like that, That man had zero compunction about taking anybody out, and he had gotten himself to a place where he had the power and authority to do that kind of work. Now, there's all kinds of details to this, and, you know, it took years for him to build himself up to that place, but that's where he was in the 1980s. Make that super, super clear. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't. It's not super clear in your question, but it looks like there's been some misunderstanding along the way about just how long David Miscavige has actually been in charge. And make no mistake about it, since definitely by 84, I would say actually 82 or 83, but certainly by 84, 85, he was absolutely in charge of what was going on in Scientology, but he was still acting with, you know, through L. Ron Hubbard's orders. Hubbard was still delivering orders, and he was still alive until early 1986, By 1987, David Miscavige was unquestionably and irrevocably in charge of Scientology and every single aspect of it. He won the power struggle between him and Pat Broker and took over RTC, got rid of Jesse Prince, got rid of Vicky Asneran, got rid of, by that point, had already declared a host of other people. And anybody who crossed him was absolutely toast. And he had Marty Rathman, Mark Yeager, um, Mark Ingber, and um, uh, Ray Midoff, who were four senior people in Scientology over administrative lines, technical lines, ethics lines. He put he had them totally loyal to him. So, and they had been messengers too, some of them longer than he had been around. You know, the thing about Miscavige was he had no compunction about taking people out, and he didn't have a whole lot of compassion or empathy for people. So he didn't have second guess. He didn't second guess himself when he was putting himself in the leading position and just kind of taking over and assuming power, as he himself said he needed to do. So that all happened then. So, Okay, so now let's talk about Heber Gentian. His title is president, nominal president of the Church of Scientology. That title never meant anything. It was for people like you to think he was a powerful person within the church and he was running the show, Heber. Heber was never running anything. Heber was a staff member of the Office of Special Affairs. 
and he was the, uh, not even the head of the Office of Special Affairs. The president within the world of the C organization is a PR position that is in Division 6. It's a public-facing division. It's the division that interfaces with the rest of the big, wide world. Every organization and sub-organization in Scientology has a Division 6, which is this public interface division. And Heber Gench was um, the Division 6 face of Scientology for all through the 80s, well in through the 90s. And, um, and he was the guy who would be trotted out to go on radio shows, TV shows, do magazine articles and stuff, and be the PR spokesperson for Scientology. That position was taken over by um, the, the PR spokesman part was taken over by Tommy Davis in the 2000s. Heber started some whatever decline he started in the 90s or 2000s. I don't know the exact trajectory, but I do know that by the early 2000s, David Miscavige then started the whole. That's when it started, was in the early 2000s. Up until then, Miscavige had been occupying this position and still occupies this position of dictatorial head of Scientology as chairman of the board of RTC, the Religious Technology Center. I did a whole video breaking all these command lines down and showing where David Miscavige's actual position is and what his actual job is. So I highly recommend you check that out if you haven't watched it yet. You're a longtime viewer, so I'm pretty sure you might have seen it, but check it out again because I, I kind of break some of this stuff down. Um, so Miscavige has been unquestionably and ruthlessly in charge of Scientology since L. Ron Hubbard basically passed. There hasn't been anyone else who's even been close to his position of power. So when you talk about, you know, his former bosses, I go, in what world? You know, the, none of these people were ever former bosses of David Miscavige. And the, like I said, the president title, that he, Heber Gench was never the Barack Obama of Scientology. <laughs> okay, the only person who has had that position was L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige. All right, so I think I've made that clear. I don't need to retell the entire whole story. Um, the story of the whole, you know, in order to get all that across. I think that addresses the points you brought up in your question. If you do still have questions about how he pulled this off, I mean, with him in charge and over the 90s, make no mistake, David Miscavige solidified his position with the public of Scientology and with the staff and with the Sea Org. So he got himself to a place that by the early 2000s, Anyone in the world of Scientology who crossed him was absolutely toast. And he had the power and authority to tell, to declare anybody a suppressive person right on the spot. You're declared. You're, you're a suppressive person. You're out of here. Uh, you're going to the RPF. Now, go. Report. Just go. That's the power he has. He can just ruin a person's life with a sentence. And he's been doing that enthusiastically ever since. So that's what the hole's all about. And the hole went on for many years, but it didn't go on for decades. It was a it was a few years that that went on. And then it was found out about because Mike and Marty and these guys came out and and started, you know, talking about it. And it got on Anderson Cooper to the point where the wives had to come out and deny it and you know, lie 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 lie. So um so the hole was a sh a fairly short-lived thing in this big picture of Scientology and David Miscavige's career in it. So anyway, like I said, I hope that contextualizes it for you. And thank you very much for asking because I, I want to clear these kind of things up with people so they understand what the picture actually looks like. It's so much worse in so many ways than people think it is. And yet sometimes the ways they think it's is horrible is not exactly right. So anyway, like I said, thanks for giving me an opportunity to clarify that for you. GW, London organization staff members are, for the past two weeks now, creating long-form discussion and lecture videos and posting them to YouTube. To date, they have posted about 10 of them. This seems contrary to my understanding of how social media is used and permitted within the church. Why is it that we don't see more of this type of thing? Any commentary on what they are posting? Hey, thanks for the question. I was just checking, and yep, sure enough, Charlie Wakeley's channel, and Charlie Wakeley is a staff member of the London Org, 
And uh, he's posting as of two hours ago. He was still posting. So nobody's put a stop or a kibosh on his channel yet. And frankly, I am the most surprised of anybody. Now, I think I mentioned before that I have reached out to Charlie and asked him to be on my show. And he responded and gave me an email address. But And I, I emailed him, but I have not heard back yet. And I don't expect to. But I was, I was respectful and, and uh, earnest in my communication to him that I would not reveal confidential information. I would not throw, you know, Xenu at him and all that. And that I would honestly and really like to talk to him. And I told him, look, man, you want to get in front of thousands of people, you get on my channel and people will watch. But he has not taken me up on that offer. Now, as far as his channel goes, I believe that what he's doing is a bit of a maverick, renegade kind of thing. I don't think he's got church sanctioned for what he's doing. And how he's getting away with it, I'm actually a little curious about myself. But the reason why you don't see a lot of Scientologists doing this is because Scientology is, man, I mean, paranoid to a degree. It's hard to even communicate or, or get across about their public image. It's weird because, of course, they have such a toxic image. Now, maybe, maybe there is some effort being made to humanize Scientology, and Charlie Wakely is the pilot program to do that by showing that Scientologists are regular people who can have YouTube channels, and what's the big deal, and we're on social media, and, and there's no problem with this. Well, all right, this is one guy, you know. Is, are there more? Do Sea Org members have unfiltered access to the Internet now? Will Charlie actually take me up or anybody else on being interviewed? Will they, any of them actually be challenged on their ideas or beliefs or even be willing to be questioned about them? I mean, obviously, until they do that, all this content is just, you know, fluff. It's just kind of nonsense. It's just puffery. And um, it doesn't really address what Scientology is and what it's all about. It addresses the... The, the smoke and mirrors, you know, the window dressing of Scientology and, and what people fall for as opposed to what it's doing behind the scenes. And to give Charlie um, a break, he's a London staff member. He's, I don't know that he's ever even been in the Sea Org. I don't know that he knows a thing about how things really are in Scientology beyond London staff experience. And being on staff sucks but it's still possible, I can tell you from eight years of personal experience as a staff member at one of the Scientology's city-level churches, that you can rationalize your way through it and believe that the reason the place isn't taking off is because you aren't working hard enough. We're just not applying Hubbard's policies hard enough. You know, you can sell yourself on that song and dance for a very long time. I did, and I watched a whole lot of other people do it, and some of them, unfortunately, are still doing it in Santa Barbara to this day. It's very sad. Um, and that's where Charlie's at. So, you know, are these guys going to take on any real content about Scientology? Are they going to address any of the tough questions about it? No, of course they won't. That, I guarantee you. Uh, the, the day I see that, I'm going to have some tune changing to do about Scientology, but I have yet to see any evidence that they're actually going to engage honestly and openly and transparently with the world at large. Um, a single staff member with a YouTube channel putting up interviews with other Scientologists is far from revolutionary behavior for them. And I do think that before too long, especially with me talking about it this much, that the church is going to put the kibosh on that uh, from an official arm of some kind. How they're going to go about doing that, I'm a little curious myself. So let's kind of see what happens. And I will reiterate again, Charlie, if you want to come on my show, I am ready and willing to talk to you. I hope you do. Blake Nestle. I want to start this off by stating that I believe, based on what you've said in your own work, that your opinion on gun ownership has evolved over time and you're not as tacitly supportive of anti-gun legislation slash positions as you once were. I think we both approach this topic from a place of good faith, wanting to balance the rights of the individual with the safety of the society around them. That being said, I think we may disagree on what best con contributes to that balance 
and that is what I'd like to discuss if you're willing. Recently, I saw a video wherein Alyssa Milano asked Americans to stop buying guns during this pandemic. Let's leave aside the Me Too hypocrisy elephant in the room and focus on the audacity of the message in that video. In a time where this is increased potential for lawlessness and societal breakdown, people are seeking out effective means of defending themselves from a potential threat. So why is this being spoken about as though it's odd or illogical? I find it peculiar, kindest word I could use, that the people who publicly and vociferously claim to champion the safety of the individual are often exuberantly supportive of empowering the state, the primary medium for abusing the individual throughout all of human history. I also find it peculiar that these same individuals, who can both afford to and often do have armed security around them practically 24-7, talk a great deal about imbalances of power. Anyone who fancies themselves anti-gun, a position I find rather humorous, seeing as people who hold said positions are clearly fine with the state owning firearms, making them not so much against gun ownership, but pro-gun ownership monopoly in the hands of the state, an oddly authoritarian stance for self-proclaimed people's champions. My question at this point is, where are the reasonable voices amongst you? Who amongst you has a suggestion that would be effective at reducing gun violence that simultaneously respects the rights of millions of your law-abiding neighbors? I'm hoping you, as a critic of a powerful organization that would happily weaponize anything they could to move against you, can see how potentially abusable something like red flag laws are. They would essentially grant individuals the power to write KRs on one another, and I would assume that's not something you'd be remotely okay with. I hope you and your wife are weathering the storm all right. Stay healthy, and I look forward to more of your work. Hey, thanks, Blake. All right, so here we go. Gun rights. Um, I, you know, <laughs> I have, I probably will in the future, talk about this ad nauseum, um, you know, from all the different aspects of it. So I'm not going to try to do a full, you know, answer of every single point you've brought up here because I can't be an apologist for celebrities who have you know, security guards and gun details uh, with them. I, you know, I understand the need for that. And I understand why it could be looked at as hypocrisy as well, that somebody would like to be in a society that doesn't have guns while they see the need to have guns in order to protect themselves. I don't necessarily see how that has to be a hypocritical point of view, but I do understand how you would see it that way. So, in other words... If they, you know, it doesn't have to be hypocritical because maybe said celebrity would be more than happy to get rid of their security detail if the rest of the world would get along without guns too, right? But because they have guns, the celebrity has to have guns. Anyway, and here I am acting as a celebrity apologist when I said I wasn't going to do that. So you asked if there are any reasonable voices amongst us. Well, I try to put myself out there as a reasonable voice, so let me give it my best shot. Um... Yes, my views on this have changed. I would say that my views on this have not changed so much as widened to understand that there are um, bigger questions here than how do we stop or prevent school shootings. My initial interest in guns and gun violence had to do with school shootings and kids being shot. And of course, all of us think that that is a horrible tragedy that should be prevented at any and all costs, or not any and all costs, but at as many as, as, as it needs to be prevented. <laughs> and if we need to make some sacrifices in order to prevent that, then we need to do that. But how do we go about doing that smartly? And as you said, how do we do it without violating people's rights? It is beyond my control or any other individual's control that we have the right in the United States to bear arms, to own and bear arms. That has been clarified over and over again, gone up and down through the Supreme Court, and it's not something that I'm going to take away tomorrow. And the more I think about it, the more I think that maybe we shouldn't take it away. But that being said, you know, we also have a right to movement. That's a human right. It's in, the, it's in um, European... Um, declarations of human rights. It's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that you have the freedom to move around, to go from place to place. And yet, do you have a right to just walk onto an airplane anytime you want so you can go from place to place? No, you don't. Do you have a right to just get in any car anywhere you want and just go anywhere you want? 
No, you don't. Do you have a right to just get on a bus anywhere and get go anywhere you want or order an Uber? No, you don't. You got to pay for these things. You, there's an exchange factor or you have to have a license if you're going to fly a plane. You have to pay for a ticket if you're going to be a passenger on a plane. You have to get a license to drive a car. So we all recognize that we have this right, this human right to move, to get around, to take us to take our bodies where we want them to go. And yet we curb that right through various ways, because services are provided to us to facilitate that right. But even if we break it all the way down to walking, we still don't have the right to walk anywhere we want. I can't walk into somebody else's house. I can't walk into a government building anytime I want. I can't walk into the CIA and go have a conversation with the head of the CIA just because I feel like it, because I have the freedom to move. So again, this is a right. We all recognize it's a right, but we curtail that right based on other rights. And that's where this sort of thing comes into play. How do we balance this out so that other people's rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, etc., are not also being infringed upon by gun owners? That's the big question, and it's a tough question, obviously. And the best, most rational solution I've been able to come up with that I think would truly work, or at least it would work to a, to a degree that um, is better than I think what we've got now, is to adopt a very similar uh, analogous limitation on gun ownership in the same way that we've limited the power of movement here in the United States when it comes to driving. You don't get to drive around in the United States unless you have a license. And that license is only gotten when you can prove that you are competent to drive. Because you're taking a multi-ton vehicle that is very easily capable of mass murder. And you're taking it out on the road. You can harm yourself. You can harm others. And thousands of people do every single day. So, we still allow that right to be... Uh, carried out, but we limit it by saying you have to have a license, and we're not going to let you drive around unless you got one, because we want competent drivers on the road. We don't want incompetent drivers. Now, as wonderful or unwonderful as that system is, it still leaves the door open for people to have accidents, to be incompetent, but at least there's some bridge put there towards competence. There's some demand being made that at one point in time, you demonstrated that you understood the rules of the road well enough that we could trust you with this multi-ton vehicle. And we could trust that you weren't going to go out and just run over 50 people on your first time out. And if we did not put such license demands down, would there be more accidents? Almost, un almost certainly there would be. How could there not be? Because the level of competence demanded of drivers would not be as high. And so we would have more accidents than we have. We you know, limit it with other ways, with seat belts and, and uh, mileage laws, you know, and how many, how, or speed laws, how fast you can drive, stuff like that. So, so all these you know, limitations or, or governors are put on this right. So... Let me carry all of that, that whole little beautiful analogy I just created, and let me carry that right over to guns and say we should have licenses for guns and not just a license to own a gun, but an actual training license that shows that you have demonstrated to a trained person who knows what they're doing, you have demonstrated to that person that you are competent with this deadly weapon. Um, there really is no other description for a gun. It's not a toy. It's not something you use to hunt. It's a deadly weapon. It's the only reason guns exist is to harm or kill things, right? The whole target shooting thing, just spare me, right? I mean, yes, that exists in the same way that race cars exist. You know, we're entertained by them. They, they, they push them, that sort of thing. Great. But that's not the primary purpose of a car, and it never was. That's not why car, cars weren't invented to have road races or the Indy 500. Guns weren't invented so we could have marksman competitions. Guns are, were invented to kill other people. So if you're going to have one and you're going to demonstrate or exhibit the, you know, carry out your right to have one, then you should first be made to demonstrate that you can be trusted with one. I don't think that's an unreasonable demand. 
Yes, absolutely, positively, there's a whole bunch of, you know, 2A purists who will disagree with me about that and say, it doesn't say that anywhere, so therefore, in the Constitution or Bill of Rights, and therefore, I don't agree with it. Well, great. You go off and make your own society because there's all kinds of things that aren't written in the Constitution or Bill of Rights that we have to put up with and we got to deal with in order to have a society of a few hundred million people here in the United States where we can get along with each other and we can trust each other well enough that we don't have to, you know, walk around with guns, you know, paranoid and crazy about uh, one another killing one another, right? We've got all these laws and, and the foundations of our society in place for exactly that reason. And this is just another one of those things, I think, that would make this smoother and make it easier and, and um, would make it so that we are better able to keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Um, can put testing regulations in place, can put different kinds of licenses in place in the same way that we have different licenses for um, cars versus, you know, uh, trucks, you know, versus motorcycles. I mean, you got different kinds of things that, that classify competence at different levels. You could do the same thing with guns, pistols versus rifles versus shotguns, let's say, um, that kind of thing. So, um, that's an immediate answer that I have. Uh, you know, there could be other ideas, but um, but that's the one I've got. And you asked, so I answered. <laughs> there you go. Kylie P. I just watched a video of yours where you said that the majority of Sea Org members are pre-clear. This totally shocked me. I don't know why, but I assume Scientologists would have to be clear in order to become part of the Sea Org. So now I'm wondering, how does a Scientologist get invited to the Sea Org? What determines their eligibility if it isn't their status on the bridge? Is it more about their level of dedication to the church and potential usefulness to the Sea Org? Also, I'm guessing there's a certain demographic that's targeted for recruitment, like younger people who don't have an established family or career. Am I right about that? So many questions. Thanks, Kylie, and this is a good question. Um, it was originally, for a very short period of time, the Sea Org, as it was first founded, only allowed OTs. That only lasted for about a year or two. And then anybody could join. And everybody did. I mean, anybody did. They had all kinds of people signing up. And to this day, the only real requirement for you to be a Sea Org member is, yes, you do have to be a Scientologist. They, they have recruited non-Scientologists in the past, but that has always been a disaster. I mean, I can count on one hand. Hell, I think I can count on one finger how many exceptions there are to that rule, right? Um, so they always go for Scientologists. Makes sense. The Sea Org is the fanatical core of Scientology. It's, it doesn't make a lot of sense to recruit somebody into the Sea Org if you're not in a fanatical state of mind about the Sea Org. And the reason for that is because the demands that are going to be made on you as a Sea Org member are so intense, no one who wasn't already bought into Hubbard's brand of nonsense would buy into the Sea Org and its existence. So they want Scientologists. Where they're at on the bridge doesn't matter. Where they're at training-wise doesn't really matter. Do they have to have some training or some auditing? Well, yeah, because that's what it takes to become a Scientologist. But how much? Not the, not the most important question. How fanatical they are about Scientology is the important question. And the recruitment cycle that gets done is meant to install or indoctrinate fanaticism, to radicalize the person, if you will, um, so that they will join the Sea Org, because joining the Sea Org is a pretty radical thing to do. You are literally giving up everything. People who have houses with mortgage payments or cars with, you know, that kind of thing make it tougher because they have to unload that stuff before they can join the Sea Org. Yet they could still be pot prospects that are gone after. It's just that it will take them longer to get them in. And usually in the world of Scientology, immediate gratification is what's needed because they, they got to get the guy on now, 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 because it's only Thursday until two. You know, they got to get that stat. But Sometimes they really, really need this particular individual because of their skill set or because of who they are or something like that. Um, so they'll take a longer, they'll do a longer, sometimes weeks, months long project prepare, a series of steps the person needs to do 
like sell their car, sell their house, you know, sell their kids, whatever they got to do in order to arrive in the Sea Org. Having young children is pretty much an out qualification at this point, has been for a number of years. So, um, so yes, there are qualifications as far as that goes, you know, in, you know, unhandleable debt, um, young children, or even, you know, children at all, I guess who, I think under the age of 12, I would say after 12, the Sea Org recruiters start going, Hmm, that person might be in the Sea Org too. Um, yeah, I mean, that still happens. Does. Uh, yeah, so those are the things. Oh, and also, of course, you can't have ever taken LSD or its derivatives. Now, that what I just said is a quote, LSD or its derivatives. What does that mean? Angel dust to anything that causes you to hallucinate. I mean, that's, you know, it's pretty broad road. Um, Hubbard said, I think in 1978 or 79, he wrote, you know, LSD cases must not be recruited. If you've taken LSD or any of its derivatives, you will not be allowed to be in the Sea Org. And in fact, the person who recruited you is going right to the RPF for doing that. So the recruiters are, the second you hint that you've taken any LSD, they're like, ah, you know, backing away as quickly as they can. So, um, so that's a factor as well. But even having said that, I knew people who had taken LSD and got recruited into the Sea Org and got a petition and got it okayed even when they weren't supposed to. I think at this point, well, who can say? It goes up and down, right? I've seen it enforced. I've seen it not enforced, that LSD rule. Uh, so there you go. Those are the requirements for it. Okay, guys. So that was our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope the questions and answers were interesting, informative, and educational, and hopefully entertaining. <laughs> um, if you have enjoyed this channel, and if you are enjoying my content and what I'm putting out here, um, then please support me through Patreon. Um, there's also PayPal, one-off, you know, donations and that kind of thing are wonderful. I love you guys. I love all of you, actually, for just watching. Um, but the supporters, of course, especially because you guys are the ones who keep the lights on and keep the show going here. We've got some really exciting things coming. I am really pumped about the call-in show coming this week. I hope you guys will be able to check it out. Um, I, I, yeah, I just, I, I'm a little, I'm nervous as hell about it, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I really, really, really look forward to interacting with you guys directly. All right. See you guys next week on this show. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.